This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. Crime Classics is a United States radio docudrama which aired over CBS. It was created, produced, and directed by radio actor-director Elliot Lewis. The program was a historical true crime series examining crimes and murders from the past. It grew out of Lewis's personal interest in famous murder cases and took a documentary-like approach to the subject, carefully recreating the facts, personages, and feel of the time period. Comparatively, little dramatic license was taken with the facts and events, but the tragedy was leavened with humor, expressed largely through the narration. The cases range from famous assassinations of Abraham Lincoln, Leon Trotsky, and Julius Caesar, and the lives and often deaths of the likes of Caesar Borgia and Blackbeard to more obscure cases such as Bathsheba Spooner, who killed her husband, Joshua Spooner, in 1778, and became the first woman tried and executed in America. Tonight, we hear the case of Colonel James Fisk. Good evening. This is Crime Classics. I am Thomas Highland. I'm going to tell you another true crime story. Listen. The sound you hear is that of a man having his right hand hook filed. It's Saturday night in London town and he wants to be gleaming and presentable. The year is 1739, when a well-sharpened hook in London town was considered prudent, and Captain Rat, that's R-A-T-T, besides being a drunkard, a scoundrel, and a smuggler, was a prudent man. The young man handling the file is named Charles Drew, Jr., and he is performing this intimate little ironmongery because he needs a favor done. Captain Rat can help him out. He can supply the youngster with an alibi. And Junior badly needs one, for he has just shot his father dead. And tonight, my report to you on the shrapnel body of Charles Drew Sr. Crime Classics, a new series of true crime stories taken from the records and newspapers of every land, from every time. Your host each week, Mr. Thomas Highland, connoisseur of crime, student of violence, and teller of murders. Now, once again, Mr. Thomas Highland.
The year, as I've told you, is 1739. And the place? Long Melford in the county of Suffolk. Long Melford was a small, quiet town near London. And in it, a manor. And in the manor, a high-vaulted room of roaring fire, great shadows, and flying buttresses. Directly beneath the buttress that flew toward the west, two men, father, son, Charles Drew Sr., Jr. Son? Yes, father? The time has come for you and I to have a talk. I'm grateful. There are things vexing me. Perhaps what I have to tell you will answer your vexation. I'm very fortunate. I've tried to be a good father. A most excellent father. There's no one richer than you in Long Melford. Which is what I want to talk with you about. I know. I've drawn my latest will. This. What a gentle and most excellent father I have. Have you ear to what they say of you in the square? No, what do they say? That you are gentle and most excellent. What of the will? I'm leaving everything to your five sisters. And to you sixpence. To lend, to spend, to start your fortune. But the last will, the one before this, you left me everything. Only a kind word to my five sisters. Mm. That was when you were eleven. Now you are nineteen. And a good son. To whom good? To you good. Nay, to the cutthroats and smugglers with whom you cousin. It is not so. This is so, I know it. You consort with people of ill fame. And also with Mr. Richardson's housekeeper. <laughs> Shall I explain this of Mr. Richardson's housekeeper to you? Would be well. She is a most excellent housekeeper, and uh, I wish to employ her for our own household. And this you have been trying to do for the last year? Well, she demands high payment. Our family can afford high payment. But I personally cannot, Father. Not until I inherit your fortune. And which with this new will will never be. Father. I don't scare, son. Wave that gun or... smattering of intelligence concerning 1739 ballistics. Ammunition was chiefly of two types, round or irregular. The former was manufactured by dropping chunks of molten lead from a great height, and when it reached the vat of water at the bottom of flight, it was round, due to centrifugal forces and gravity. Among men who puttered with this sort of thing, round shot was considered pretty fancy. Mostly, guns were loaded in this era by whatever iron junk was to hand. It should be recorded that Charles Drew, Jr. had stopped at a small junkyard on his way to talk with his dad. This is the reason the coroner found numerous pieces of irregular junk iron in dad's corpse. Let's see what dad's son is up to now. Scene, Ye Old Bunnery, a run-down bake shop on Abernathy Lane. The time, two hours later. Principals... Charles Drew, Jr., and Mr. Humphrey, Bunbaker. That brings you to ye old bannery, Charlie. I want to know a thing. And that is what? Humphrey, how would you like a hundred pounds? <sighs> you were saying a hundred pounds? 
All you must do is say you killed a man. I killed a man. My hundred pounds, please. You must say you killed my father. I killed your father. My hundred pounds. To the police. Charlie. Two hundred pounds now, and and, and two hundred pounds after you've been to the police. You killed your poor old dad, Charlie? With this pistol. Uh Leave you to be a very rich man? If someone were to go to the police and said he killed my father, he would be rich too. (laughs) With his neck in the gibbet. I would guarantee that the man would be released. Inside of a week, he would be released. There are jailers who would release such a man, persuaded correctly, with enough money. A guarantee, I... I know a guarantee. Write me a confession that you killed your poor dear old dad. I will hide it. I will go to the police and confess the deed. If I'm still in jail in a week, I will tell the jailer where to find your confession. Uh, Wrap me up a half a dozen of your excellent buns, Humphrey, and I will give you two hundred pounds plus the price of them. Thereupon, Humphrey plucked a quill from his favorite goose in the back goose coop, sharpened it, and presented it to Charlie. With it, the lad wrote out his confession, paid up, and left. Humphrey waited for his wife, got permission to leave the shop, stopped at his house for a moment, then walked into the local constabulary and made history with this statement. If you boys are looking for a corpus, try 26 Bloom Street. If you're wondering what his name is, it's Charles Drew Senior. If you're wondering who did the murder on him, it's me. And my name is Humphrey. The police, upon arriving at the appropriate room at 26 Bloom Street, understood immediately that foul play had been done. One of the constables was assigned to look in on the household of Mr. Humphrey, and there saw the Humphrey children at play at Thistledee-Doo, a game usually played with marbles, but by the Humphrey children, played with pieces of iron junk, which latter were of a size that could easily be rammed down the muzzle of a gun. The gun was there, too under a pillow on Mr. Humphrey's side of the bed. Mrs. Humphrey, who in the meanwhile had returned home, shook her head philosophically when apprised of the situation. It is recorded that Mrs. Humphrey's parents had both been put away as confirmed smugglers, a felony against the Crown. The next day, in jail... Nice of you to visit me, Charlie. Yes. What news do you bring? When am I to be released? I... I went to see Sir Roger Firebrace. How is Sir Roger? Dead. Tis a pity, too, for he would have gotten your release in an ounce for a few hundred pounds. Don't forget, laddie. I've got your confession. You've got till Sunday. Youngster, however, knew another man of note, Sir Chauncey Fenwick. Sir Chauncey was compassionate and understood the situation exactly, but unfortunately had just had one of his periodic fallings out with the magistrate's wife. But Sir Chauncey did not send the lad away empty-handed. He suggested an old sea dog named Captain Rat, uh, with two T's. What's the fire, Mr. Drew? You'll be missing me hook and be scraping my wrist. Oh, I'm very sorry, Captain Knight. Mm-hmm. 
nervous, ain't you? But I, I travelled here to London to talk to you. Yeah, you see, Sir Fenwick sent you to me. Sir Fenwick took five hundred pounds and said he could do nothing with it. You're my last resort, Captain Rat. A wee bit here, Mr. Drew. Aye. No. What can old Captain Rat do for you? Do you have any influential friends? What be you needing? An alibi. For yourself? For a friend. Aye. Tis always for a friend. What about him? He confesses he killed my father. And he be your friend? By killing my father, he made me rich. I bear him no malice. And for him, you want an alibi. Why? Why not let him rot? Why, Zanny? You, you see... You kill your daddy, Zanny? <laughs> Keep the hook, Captain. You almost stuck me. <laughs> a pardon, young gentleman. An alibi you wanted it. For a friend, eh? Uh... To see what? That my friend is making a mistake. That he is having hallucinations. That he did not kill my father because he was with you the night my father died. And where, Mr. Drew, will that leave you? Well, since one has confessed to the crime, it is doubtful whether I would be charged with it. A sly one. Beant you a sly one, young gentleman. Beant you. Oh. <laughs> I'll travel down to the jail... With you and have a talk with your friend. How's that, eh? Very good. I, uh, <clears throat> I'll need 500 pounds for expenses. Oh, I, uh, yes. Now. Yes. Wasting a Saturday night and all, coming down here to the dungeon speaking to you, Mr. Humphrey. But I don't mind. And you're going to furnish me an alibi, Captain. Uh, this be a strange one. I explained it all to you, Captain. You kill your dad. This one here says he done it. Now the both of you want me to say he couldn't have done it because he was with me. That lad thought it up. He's the bright one, not me. My plan will work. By the time you get Humphrey out of here and the police begin to dig about again, I'll be in Paris. Lost. I will change my name and with my fortune I... Uh, for your fortune, I will do it. Uh, I gave you 500 pounds. Ah, the pittance. Your fortune, Mr. Drew. Except what he's promised to me. What about it, lad? I... No. Taylor! Ah. Present talking to both of you. It's Saturday night, Charlie. What will you do? It's Saturday night, Charlie. I've got your confession hidden away. And tomorrow's Sunday. What will you do? each other there in the dungeon, the jailed and the young visitor. And the question hung there. What would Charlie do? It's Saturday night, and tomorrow is Sunday. 
will you do, Charlie? are listening to Crime Classics and your host, Thomas Hyland. Tomorrow night, hear the premiere performance of 21st Precinct, a new hard-hitting mystery series revealing the inner workings of the world's largest police force. 21st Precinct, produced by CBS radio team that gave you gangbusters, is a program you'll want to listen for every Tuesday night on most of these same stations. Premiere performance tomorrow night on CBS radio. And now, once again, Thomas Hyland and the second act of Crime Classics. And his report to you on the shrapneled body of Charles Drew, Sr. It's a short, dusty road from Long Melford to London. Not only that, but these days it's hard to find. In its day, however, it was remarkable for two things. The brothers Shoes Spooner, Dick and Harry, who embarked on a career of highwomanship on the morn of June 3, 1735, were hung on the eve of that same day from the highest branch of an elm at a fort on Long Melford Road. The other historic feature of Long Melford Road is the fact that on a Sunday morning, a young murderer, Charles Drew Jr., and his lady love... Rode a coach down its ruts. Oh, he's a renting, roving lad. He is a brisk and a bonny lad. Be tied what may, I will be with. And follow the boy with the white cockade. Liz. What is it, dearie? Shut up. Everyone's singing that song, dearie. It's the rage. Please, shut up. Oh, duck, what's the matter? You're the cause of it all. What all, Duck? By killing my father. You wanted a way to have all his money? I told you a way to do. That's all. Yes. Oh, Duck, dearie. You'll see when we get to London what a time I'll show you. Make you forget. Since I've killed him, I've done everything wrong. Will you listen to Liz again? Will you? Surely I'll listen, Poodle. Oh, Duck. <laughs> Monkey. Will you listen to Liz? Surely. We get to London, we change your name, and you forget about Humphrey. But if I, I don't get him out of jail tonight, he'll show the police my confession. But you'll be in London. Start forgetting about him right now. <laughs> All right. so they fled to London town, little knowing that they had made a road famous. In London, they located a little-known hideaway called Bonhomme Carter's Thorny Bull Inn on the corner of Asquith and Chiswick. The lad registered under an alias, Thomas Roberts. Liz, however, registered in her own name, Elizabeth Bathall. As this was going on back in Long Melford Jail, where Mr. Humphrey was, there transpired this. 
In one hour, Barthy, I'm getting out of here. You be a fool. How a fool? Where'd you ever have so much money? What bun are you baking, wifey? This bun. The lad's giving you money, all that money, and he's good for more. Aye. All we want. He's a rich one, that's true. We can get more money before you show his confession. How? You said he fled. His Liz told me they were off to London town. You could write him a letter and say as long as he paid you 20 pounds a day, you'd be willing to stay where you are. 20 pounds a day? That's a robbery. (laughs) (laughs) I will go to London and find Master Drew and present him with the letter. How will you find him? Ask here and about of him. London, eh, London. What of the children? Mrs. Nickelrod says she will take care of them. And you, alone in London? So Mrs. Humphrey went to London. A few observations about Mrs. Humphrey. Wash away the flour and the excess dough. Put on long sleeves to hide the muscles made prominent from kneading bun dough. Comb the hair, exchange shoes for boots, and Gertrude Humphrey was rather uh, presentable. When she went to London, Mrs. Humphrey did all of these things. Plus making a mental note not to laugh too much. Not only because of the horrible sound she made but also because of the mischievous twitch it brought on, which she could not control. So, off she went to this place, to that, to this pub, to that, asking for a Mr. Drew. I should like to comment here that in 1739, the gin was of an excellent Holland distillation. However, its chemistry had a peculiar reaction with Gertrude Humphrey. Though she fought it, and though she laughed not at the most hilarious joke, including the historically famous one about Lady Mumbly and the Troubadour, the gin caused her to twitch mischievously. This attracted to her London dandies, who plied her with more Holland gin, and who promised her help in finding Mr. Drew, and who never did. But Gertrude never lost sight of her mission, and one night in a pub in Covent Garden... Mr. Mr. What's your pleasure, dearie? Well, now, dearie. I want a gin. Uh, gin for the lady. What's your name, dearie? Gertie. Gertie? Aye. Is it gin, Gertie? Drink up. Well, now, dearie. Is your name Drew? Is that what you want my name to be? I'm looking for Mr. Drew. Mr. Drew, is there a Mr. Drew? Yes. Oh, now, Gertie, I'm the one who's bought you the gin. Yes, my name is Drew. <laughs> you ain't the Drew I'm looking for. Well, now, why do you say that? Oh, here they are, lad. Oh, I'm the fellow who's bought her the gin. Here's a guinea, my lad. Find another lady who likes gin. Oh, Oh, I will, that governor. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, Gertie. Oh, now, now, why do you weep, pretty one? You're 
so beautiful. <laughs> Always cry at beautiful things. Gin for the lady. Now, 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 stop that weeping. Ah, here's your gin. I say, mischievous wink you have. Is that truly your name? Truly, Lady Bird, it is. Lady Bird, Lady Bird. And you were looking for me? Lady Bird. My name is Drew, and uh, you shouted for Mr. Drew. So beautiful. What do you want of me? I've a letter for a man named Drew. Really? Oh, I want you, David. I really do. Then give it to me. You must turn your back now. Right you are. Here you are. You want a conniver, you are. <laughs> His name really was Drew, Timothy Drew. It's one of those coincidences in history which gave rise to the old saw, truth is stranger than fiction, as they say. And he was a curious man, and a proud man, jealous of his name, Drew. He had heard his name mentioned, and he was forced to find out why. He read the letter then and there. He read it again, a little later, out loud, to the police. And my missus told you have gone to London with Liz Bathall. But, Charlie, my lad, you shall pay me 20 pounds a day, else I will tell that you have murdered your poor daddy. I have your paper, which you confessed you did, right where nobody but me knows where. So when my wife hands you this letter, you better give her money and find a way to keep it, uh, giving it to her, your faithful servant, Mr. Walter Humphrey. Gentlemen... Here in London is a man named Charles Drew. He has murdered his father, and he bears the same surname as I. I cannot permit this deed to go unpunished. Even in 1739, the London police were thorough, and, goaded by the enormity of the crime and spurred and accompanied by a man whose name had been besmirched, they combed the alleys, hostelries, pubs, dens. It was late on a moist Thursday morning when Timothy Drew happened into Bonhomme Carter's Thorny Bull Inn on the corner of Asquith and Chiswick. Bonhomme Carter denied the presence of a Mr. Charles Drew, but affirmed that a Liz Bathal was most certainly a guest there. He directed Timothy to Liz's chambers. Who is it? Open the door. No games, dear. It's too early. Who is it? A representative of the police. Why didn't you say? May I come in? If you be the police, you can do anything, ain't that so? Thank you. I ain't done nothing. Is your name Elizabeth Bathall? It is. Do you know a man named Charles Drew? What's he look like? I don't know. Then how can I tell if I know him? Here, here, what sort do you take me for? There's no one in my closet. 
What is this young man doing under your bed, madam? Oh, a man? What's he... Quiet, woman. Is your name Charles Drew? I'm talking to you under the bed there. Is your name Charles yes, Drew? Sir. Come out from under there, sir. That's right, sir. My name is Charles Drew, sir. And did you kill your father? It would be a small life living as I have been. Yes, Yes, I killed my father. the original issue of a gazette dated January 22nd, 1740, from which I'd like to read. The melancholy proof that when a man has abandoned all religious principles and has suffered his depraved appetites and passions to govern his reason was shown yesterday when Charles Drew Jr. was hanged in Long Melford. Since the hanging elm on Long Melford Road had recently been demolished to make a keel for the British Navy, a new gibbet was erected. This gibbet was equipped with a new mechanical device invented by Mr. Douglas Langford of Eastburn. Mr. Langford is to be congratulated. just a moment, Thomas Highland will tell you about next week's crime classic. The shrapnel body of Charles Drew Sr., tonight's crime classic, was adapted from the original court reports and newspaper accounts by Morton Fine and David Friedkin. The music was adapted from themes of the period and conducted by Bernard Herman, and the program is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Thomas Highland is portrayed on radio by Lou Merrill. Charles Drew Jr. was played by Terry Kilburn and Liz by Betty Harford. Featured in the cast were Paul Fries, Van Wright, Irene Tedrow, William Johnstone, and Anthony Ellis. Bob Lamont speaking. And here again is Thomas Highland. Next week, the office directly below that occupied by Oliver Wendell Holmes is the scene of a catastrophe. The place, Harvard Medical School. The time, 1849. My report, on the terrible deed of Dr. Webster. Thank you. Good night. Stay tuned for Duffy's Tavern and special guest Mickey Rooney next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for Archie at Duffy's Tavern to welcome Mickey Rooney to the bar. Hello, Duffy's Tavern. Where do you leave me to eat, Archie? The mind you're speaking. Duffy ain't here. Hello, Duffy. Uh, tonight, uh, Mickey Rooney. Yeah, that's the guy. Short, freckled, blonde hair, pug nose. <laughs> Sort of a Van Johnson at half mass. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of a guy. In fact, they tell me when two grasshoppers meet, one says to the other, I ain't seen you since you was knee high to Mickey Rooney. 
Listen, his size is a bit of a problem, too, you know, especially in Hollywood. Well, you know, he's too short to be a lover and too tall to be a producer. <laughs> Uh, coming down to the tavern tonight to star in a new television show I'm writing. Uh, television, Duffy, you know, uh, TV, or uh, as they call it in the trade, uh, voodoo. <laughs> huh? Well, Duffy, let me put it this way. You know the saying, uh, vaudeville is dead? Well, television is where you watch the funeral. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I think, Duff, uh, Duffy, I think Looney should be great for television. Well, sure, you know, uh... <clears throat> They got them little seven-inch screens. <laughs> He's a natural. <laughs> well, look, Duffy, I'm busy now. I'll call you back. Uh... Hey, Archie, what's this about you writing a television program? That's right, Miss Duffy. I'm going to get into television while it's still in its infancy. What are you trying to do, stun its growth? <laughs> Besides, what do you know about writing television? What's to know? I wrote radio plays. Uh, television is exactly the same, except you dub in the faces. <laughs> well, if you take my advice, you'll forget television and stay right here where you got a steady job and a security of $15 every week. <laughs> you call that security, Miss Duffy? I've had me back to the wall so long, the handwriting is on me. <laughs> Now, look, Miss Duffy, I, uh... Oh, hello, Miss Duffy. Oh, hey, did you hear the... Hey, did you hear that? <laughs> <laughs> There's no reason you shouldn't hear it twice. <laughs> you read two newspapers, don't you? Uh, Eddie, may I repeat? Yeah, uh, go ahead. hear the news? Archie's writing for television. Ooh, ain't I having enough trouble? <laughs> look, don't laugh television off, Eddie. It's a big thing, and... In fact, I often wonder how people ever got along without it. I don't know. Just lucky, I guess. <laughs> Eddie, from the tone of your inference, I gather you don't like television. Oh, it's all right while you're sitting at a bar watching it. <laughs> Just that I don't like the after effects. <laughs> you mean the eye strain. No, the hangover. <laughs> yeah, you're right, Eddie. Personally, I'll still take radio. Radio? Miss Duffy, I see you're still living in the Middle Evil Ages. <laughs> Why don't you get up to date and realize that the future always progresses the past? We've got to advance. The television is to radio what the caliper is to the old-fashioned slide rule. What does that mean? With a thought that deep, one does not stop to analyze <laughs> Well, tell me, deep one. <laughs> Who's going to act in this show of yours? Only Mickey Rooney. Mickey Rooney! Now, look, lay off. I need him for the show, and there ain't enough of them to go around. <laughs> You're so both put out of here, I'd like to finish the script. Now, let's see. Uh, act two. Our hero enters. He's a man of the world. Handsome. Dashing. Debonair. An amused smile plays about his intelligent face. He speaks. Hello, Finnegan. Uh, what you doing? I'm uh, writing a play uh, for uh, TV. That's nice. TV who? 
Uh, it ain't a who, Finnegan. Uh, TV is uh, slang for the idiom. Uh, oh. In other words, uh, well, what is it that people go into the living room for every night and turn out the lights and uh, watch for hours? The dame next door. <laughs> Talking about a different kind of entertainment, television. Oh, 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 God. Uncle Louie's got one of them things. Oh, yeah? You like to watch it? I can't make up my mind, Arch. Uh, I don't get to see much of it, thanks to me sister. How come? Well, Uncle Louie's set's got a seven inch screen, and me sister's got a 12 inch head. <laughs> well, in that case, why don't you sit in front of your sister? That's where me Uncle Horace sits. Well, if he's sitting in front of her, how can she see? Well, she can see. You know Uncle Horace. Oh, yeah, the one with the hole in his head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He thinks television is wonderful. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, by the way, uh, what's this television show that you're writing on? Well, it's sort of a soap opera. <laughs> I wish you wouldn't use that word. Opera? No, soap. <laughs> Every time I mention that word around the house, my old man washes me mouth out with dyke. Uh, well, I'll tell you what. To make your old man happy, I'll change it. I'll write a dirt opera. Oh, again. Hi, Arch. Well, Joe Moran. Hey, Joe, you're a radio guy. What do you think of television? I don't know. I don't drink. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll send that to Fred Allen. But uh, I asked you a question. Uh, well, frankly, Arch, I think television is going to kill the motion picture business. <laughs> I thought the motion pictures did that themselves. <laughs> That's very, very funny. Uh, mind if I send that to Fred Allen? Where do you think I got it? <laughs> Anyway, when I'm driving that, Joe, you know I'm uh, writing a television show. Oh? Well, when does it start? Well, as soon as I find a sponsor. Uh, a sponsor, huh? Yeah, you know, a censor with money. <laughs> <laughs> well, any chance of a job in this show, Arch? Acting? Yeah. Well, it could be, but uh, would you mind first giving me an audition? Oh, not at all. I'd like to make sure that you can run the gimlet of emotions. <laughs> uh, now... <laughs> Now, uh, let me see your uh, register, for instance, uh, love. You know, like Charles Boyer. Okay. Ah, uh, toujours l'amour, Truchet. Ah, uh, uh, Hedy, come with me to the drugstore. I will shower you with Truchet, the creamy, fragrant hand lotion that keeps hands feeling smoother, looking lovelier. This is the hottest lover since Lanny Ross. <laughs> Look, Joe, uh, try another one. See what you can do with sorrow. Okay, get a load of this. Oh, please, don't take away my bottle of Truchet. What would I do without it? It's different from other hand lotions. Because it has a unique beforehand extra that protects hands from chapping. Well, how's that for sorrow, Arch? Pretty sorry performance. <laughs> Would you like to try for fright? Okay. <laughs> Don't be afraid. <laughs> Don't be afraid. As long as Suchet is on your hands, before you do dishes or go outdoors, you guard it against chapping. Water chapping as well as weather chapping. Well, Arch, how was that for fright? 
Frightful. Well, Arch, you mean my acting leaves something to be desired? It leaves something, Joe, but it ain't to be desired. <laughs> hey, wait a minute. Excuse me, Joe. Eddie, Eddie, look who just come in. Mickey Rooney. What? There, walking in under the swinging doors. <laughs> Eddie, watch me flatter the guy. <laughs> well, Jerry Cooper. <laughs> How are you, tall in a saddle? <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute, just a minute, Arch. I'm Mickey Rooney. Mickey Rooney? That's well, it. how time flies upwards. Uh, <laughs> tell me, Mick, uh, what's new with you? I don't know. I haven't read the gossip columns today. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta send that to Fred Allen. <laughs> Well, Mick, it certainly is good to have you down here to the tavern. Tell me, uh, how come you never visited us before? Well, up to now, Arch, my studio has been very strict with me. Yeah, huh? Uh, what do you mean? Well, my contract says I can't bail out of a plane, jump into a volcano, or go over Niagara Falls in a barrel, or be seen in Duffy's Tavern. <laughs> Think I'll send that one to Milton Burrell. <laughs> Tell me, Mickey, uh, speaking of television, as we do in circles, uh, <clears throat> is it true that, uh, true what they say in Hollywood... Uh, what's that, Arch? That the movie business is falling apart? Arch, if things get any worse, the studios are going to produce the popcorn and hand out the pictures in the lobby. That's what. <laughs> yeah. Things are pretty desperate out there in Hollywood, huh? Desperate? Do you want to know a secret? What? Do you know what they're planning to do? What? Turn out good pictures. <laughs> no. Mick, they wouldn't dare. It's the last resort. Well, I guess what they say is true There's no business in show business uh, <laughs> But you're a trooper, Mick You ain't got nothing to worry about uh, Incidentally, how did you ever start in show business anyhow? Well, that goes back a long time, Arch You see, when I was a baby, Mom and Dad wanted to find out what I was best suited for uh-huh. <laughs> So right after I was born, they had the nurse give me a test Test, uh, huh? Yeah On one side of me, she put a doctor's satchel And on the other side, a lawyer's briefcase Why did you reach for the nurse. <laughs> I see, so uh, they decided to make you an actor then, huh? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I, I went into vaudeville with my mom and dad. Yeah, huh? How old was you then? Uh, two years old. Two years, and what'd you do before that? Well, Arch, to tell the truth, I just loafed a little bit. <laughs> but those were the days, good old vaudeville, the Chinese jugglers, the tightrope walkers, uh, Weber and Fields. Yeah, <laughs> Gallagher and Sheen, Hammacher and Schlemmer. <laughs> I used to love them, Max. You know, I often wonder whatever happened to them corny old vaudeville jokes. You really want to know? Yeah. I sent them to Fred Allen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry, I, I was Jesus. <laughs> well, Edward G. Robinson. <laughs> And again, it's Mickey Rooney. Arch, it's Edward G. Robinson. I'm telling you, it's Mickey Rooney. Okay, we'll ask him. Hey, bud, who are you? Never mind who I am, see? I'm the fellow that asked the questions around here, see? This is my territory, see? Ah! Ah! <laughs> You're right, Arch, it's Mickey Rooney. <laughs> He 
Mickey. Yes, an idea. Them dialects of yours, they're perfect for television. Me? Me, Arch, on, on television? Why, certainly. You see, the way I figure it, them uh, television audiences are tired of wrestling and hockey. They're, they're crying for something else to get tired of. Uh... <laughs> well, uh, tell me, what are you going to give them? You. Now, how would you like to play the lead in a daytime soap opera? How would you like a poke in the eye with a sharp stick? Now, look, don't make no hasty decisions. There's room for good acting in television, you know. It's a, it's a medium where, if anything is well done, it's rare. <laughs> you can send that one back to Pick and Pat, too, can you? Look, Mick, please, don't be jovial about this. You've got your future to think of. You know, uh, you've been around a long time now, and you ain't getting no taller, kid. <laughs> Please, uh, don't pass this up. Don't be a schmo, you know. There's a lot of room in television for tall, handsome, good-looking types like yourself. Ah, that did it. The schmo must go on. Well, Mickey, did you read the me television script? Yeah. Uh-huh. What'd you think of it? It should happen to Butch Jenkins. <laughs> We're saving him for the Hardy family. Look, this, uh... <laughs> hey, this thing just, uh, this thing just, uh... It just looks bad on paper. Uh, where do you hear it? <laughs> now, uh, leave us run through it. You see, in the first scene, you play a married man. By the way, you've been married, ain't you? <laughs> Arch... Pound for pound, I'm the most married guy in Hollywood. <laughs> That'll help you handle a part. Now, uh, you're the husband, uh -huh. and uh, Finnegan is your rival. Finnegan is the rival. I say, well, who finally wins the girl, Archie? Uh, you do, the husband. Who plays the girl? You do. I'll play the rival. Mitch, <laughs> in television, they all look like that. Uh, <laughs> Okay, we'll, uh, we'll switch it around. You play the rival, Mickey. Now, places, everybody. Uh, Mr. Melnick, uh, Frampair, please. Thank you. Okay, now, Eddie, uh, you exit from the left and read the opening announcement there. Ladies and gentlemen, to those of you who are watching this television program at home, I say greetings. And to those of you who are watching it in bars, I say order a double. You'll need it. <laughs> Please, just read what's wrote there, will you? Now I give you the director of our voodoo playhouse, Mr. Cecil B. DeArche, our head... The head billion. Hey, hey, who? Thank you, thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, good evening, Mr. and Mrs. American, all the ships at sea. Tonight... Tonight, we bring you another episode in the true life story of lovable old John and his pretty young wife, lovable old Mary. <laughs> A story that asks the question, can two people in love find happiness? As our scene opens, John, a brilliant young banker, unexpectedly returns home from his office to find his wife, Mary, making love to the Iceman. <laughs> A typical American family. 
As our story begins, we find lovable old Mary speaking to lovable old John. What's the idea coming home so early, you jerk? Uh, good evening, Mary. Uh, Mary, don't think me suspicious, but why is that derby hat hanging in the hallway? Uh, I'm taking trombone lessons. <laughs> Well, uh, what about them ice tongs on the couch? Ice tongs? Uh, I borrowed them from a neighbor. I lost my eyebrow tweezers. <laughs> uh, 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 Mary, would you think me suspicious if I just asked one more question? What is it? What are you doing on the ice man's lap? <laughs> John, you mean you put two and two together? Uh, yeah, and it adds up to... Uh, 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 <laughs> I'm sorry, John, but I've loved him for years. Loved him, do you hear? You mean all this time you've been cold to me? You've been warming up to the Iceman? John, John, let's be civilized about this. Let's not make a scene of it, shan't we? Uh, Mary, it's too late. We gotta have a showdown. Iceman, tell me, do you love Mary? I'm asking you. Speak now or forever hold my wife. <laughs> Mickey, that's your cue. Give out with a love scene like Clark Gable. Oh. Okay, uh, Finney, give him the cue again. Uh, Iceman, do you love my wife? All right. All right, you ask him. I'm going to tell you, sure, I love your wife. I love her, do you hear? That's the way it is, and that's the way it's going to be, brother. Why, you, you, you cat, take your cold hands off of her. John, I'm afraid it's... Too late. You mean? His hands are no longer cold. <laughs> and I'm leaving you. Do you hear? <laughs> you, you might as well be a man about this, lovable Judd. I'm taking Mary away with me. Away, do you hear? Uh, lovable old Mary. Is this true? Yes, lovable old John. <laughs> this is the end. The bitter? The bitter. <laughs> uh, well, it had to happen to somebody. Good luck to you. Well, so long, sucker. I hope there's no hard feelings. <laughs> sucker, huh? Little does he know I didn't pay the ice bill. Thank you. And now, now that Mary has run away with the Iceman, what will happen to John? Will he find new happiness with the refrigerator? <laughs> Only time will tell. But first, a word from one of our sponsors. Folks, as you know, we're celebrating National Eat a Plate of Rutabagas Week. <laughs> For robust and vigorous health, try Colucci Rutabagas, the Rutabaga with the pedigree. <laughs> One single helping of Colucci Rutabagas contains more iron than the double bed spring. <laughs> and it's twice as delicious. <laughs> so remember, if it's iron that your system lacks, Fill your stomach with rutabaga. 
and listen to the clink. <laughs> and above all, remember our sponsor's jingle. A. Avocado. B. Boiled potatoes. C. Succotaceous. NBC. And folks, back to our smell vision. <laughs> I'll ignore it. <clears throat> and now back to our story. The scene is 20 years later. Lovable old John has sank lower and lower. He has tried everything to forget. He's drifted from job to job. Western Union boy. Song plugger. Lighthouse keeper. General in a South American army. But all the time his mind was elsewhere. In desperation, he finally tried the want ads. And that was how John became a doctor. As luck would have it, Mary, in the meantime, had became a nurse. Our next scene is in the hospital. The head of this hospital is the famous Dr. Gillespie, played by Mickey Rooney. <laughs> That's you. I, I thought I was the Iceman. We're short of actors. <laughs> as our scene continues, there is a patient waiting on the operating table as Dr. Gillespie speaks. Oh, see here, Nurse Mary. I want you to prepare this patient for surgery. It looks like it's going to be a very delicate operation. Then, then only you can operate, Dr. Gillespie. You, with those skillful, highly trained, sensitive surgeon's hands. Will you do it? No, hang it all. On my last operation, I seem to have sewed my fingers together. <laughs> I'll find out, nurse. Is there a doctor in the house? <laughs> I say, is there a doctor in the house? Oh, I am a doctor. <laughs> you, uh, you are a doctor? Uh, yes. I am lovable old Dr. John. <laughs> nice, have you got the scalpel? Yes, doctor. What does it read? <laughs> Temperature's down to 108. 108? That's pretty low. We better put him back in the sun. <laughs> uh, but first, let me look at the patient. Yay, Hossifats. It can't be. Who? My rival, the Iceman. Yes, there was the Iceman on the operating table. <laughs> Lovable old Dr. John's hated rival that had took his wife away. What should John do? What would you do? In Dr. John's trembling hand was a scalpel, sharp as a surgeon's knife. <laughs> One tiny slip of this scalpel, and the operation might be a success. <laughs> Dr. John moves slowly toward the operating table. He looks down at his helpless victim, his mind racing blindly. Slowly, he raises his scalpel. And then... But first, a word from my sponsor. <laughs> If you stinging on kicking the bucket, <laughs> see Cavan, the smiling undertaker. Ask him about his free trial plan. <laughs> Only 20 easy payments. Folks, here's your chance to drop dead and save money. <laughs> and remember our slogan, have a Cavendish funeral while you are still young enough to enjoy it. <laughs> and now, back to our television play. Thank you, Eddie Green. <laughs> <laughs> Scalpel poised in midair, Dr. John hesitates as he faces the most momentous decision of his life. 
He thinks of Mary and the Iceman. And words from the past streak up to his sub-unconsciousness. <laughs> I'm taking Mary away with me. Away, do you hear? Yes, John, and I'm leaving you. Do you hear? <laughs> <laughs> Dr. John, snap out of it. Uh, uh. What's the matter, Doctor? Hearing voices? Yeah, but don't worry. I hear them all the time. <laughs> well, tell me, have you made up your mind, my boy? Will you operate? Uh, yes. Even though the Iceman is my hated rival... Oh, still operate. Ah, uh, stout fellow. Doctor? Yeah? Shall I boil the instruments? No, let's just fry them for a change. <laughs> Dr. John? Yes? Dr. John, we'd better hurry. The patient seems to have trouble with his breathing. I'll soon put a stop to that. <laughs> Quick, nurse. Quick, ether. Ether. Ah, oh, that clears me head. <laughs> Now, now, give some to the patient. <laughs> Dr. Gillespie? Yes. Sponge. Sponge. Cotton. Cotton. Scissors. Scissors. Ouch. Sorry. <laughs> Bandage. Bandage. It's a tense moment. Dr. John begins the operation. First, he sutures the hemostat. <laughs> then, his sensitive fingers working swiftly but carefully, he stitches a hole in the epidermis and skewers up the dorsal fin. <laughs> Finally, Dr. John speaks. Uh, gentlemen, the patient will walk again. You mean the operation was a success, my boy? Yep, but I never seen a waste case of tonsils. <laughs> oh, oh, Dr. John, you're wonderful. Well, I did. Wait, that voice. Nice. Take off that mask. But I'm not wearing a mask. <laughs> It's you! <laughs> Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's Dimension X, followed by Febra McGee and Molly. Thanks to Joe Shonwell and Paul Stringer for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Dimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.